We spent some five minutes discussing Lewis's influenza, and then half an hour or more in discussion of ethics and philosophy. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 56, The Medical Inkling, R.E. Havard. After Hours with Sarah O'Dell. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This month has been Narnia month, but we're wrapping it up with a number of non-Narnia-related interviews. And today's guest was first put on my radar by a fan favorite, Dr. Diana Glyer, and I saw her name pop up again from time to time in Lewis circles and on Facebook message boards. But my interest was really piqued when I saw that she'd been studying one of the lesser-known inklings. Dr. R.E. Havard. And the opening quotation from today's episode came from the man himself. And so here on Pints with Jack, we mainly focus on Jack, C.S. Lewis. Uh, but if you really want to know a man, it's often helpful to know about his friends. And so with that, today's guest is Sarah O'Dell. Sarah O'Dell is an MD and PhD candidate at the University of California, Irving. She's studying in UCI's Department of English where she has also completed a medical humanities emphasis. Her research focuses on the intersections between medicine, literature, and religion in the 18th century, as well as its reinterpretation of the medieval era. She has a BS in biology and an MA in English from Azusa Pacific University, where she studied under Dr. Diana Glyer and began her work on inkling and physician R.E. Havard. She's active in the world of inkling studies and is working on a book which focuses on the life and works of Dr. Havard, The Medical Inkling. And finally, when she's not writing, studying, or in the clinic, she enjoys poetry, sewing, and other creative endeavors. Sarah O'Dell, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to chat. It's such a delight to be here. Not at all. I'm hoping to learn a lot today. Uh, I would lay good money that if you surveyed even the most serious Lewis fans, nine out of ten of them couldn't tell you anything about Dr. Havard. I was thinking about it in the run-up to this episode, and I've only got two facts. He was called the useless quack, and he listened with Lewis to Hitler's speech, which was the later inspiration for the Screwtape Letters. So thank you for coming on the show and uh, telling us about one of the lesser-known Inklings. Of course. I'm looking forward to chatting about the Inkling with perhaps the most nicknames, uh, the useless quack being the <laughs> one of the more affectionate, but perhaps the least flattering <laughs> ones among them, um, which has no connection to his medical practice. And it has everything to do with being late for a promised ride uh, because they did love that he had access to an automobile. Um, and I'm looking forward to having a conversation about the inkling, physician, poet, and writer that Lewis described as one of his most very intimate friends. I've been following you on Twitter for the last few weeks or so. You've been posting quotations from Dr. Havard, and they are beautiful. It, I don't know, I just expected him to be sort of dry and dusty and not, you know, inspiring and romantic and all the other things that we expect from other inklings. Suppose it's just my prejudice against doctors. <laughs> no, 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 no. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. But it's incredible when, you know, he in this uh, oral history interview with Lyle Dorset that is held at the Wade, he says, oh, well, you know, I had never written anything very much. I was never quite as proficient as the others were. And, you know, you have this mix of kind of British reticence and also 
who is proficient, you know, who is prolific when your best friend is C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it's kind of a hard, hard bar to meet. And so it's exciting to kind of go back through the archives and go back through a lot of what is what I've been posting on Twitter is a lot of published information and kind of reclaim these essays and kind of stitch them back to our narratives about the Inklings and realize, oh, you know, the physician among the group, while he did publish a lot of scientific articles, did not only publish scientific articles. Now, during this interview, I'm going to be sipping on a little scotch, which Walter Hooper said that Lewis once sent him out to purchase, uh, Vat 69, one of the bottles I brought back from England. Uh, do you have anything? I have something not quite as exciting by way of recommendation, but hopefully appropriately English. I'm sipping on a London fog. I, I approve. Uh, and we're going to be toasting a Patreon supporter, Erica Hardy. So if you'll raise your glass. Uh, since we're talking about a medical doctor today, I suppose the most appropriate thing to say is to your good health. Cheers. Cheers. So Sarah, to begin with, would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your rather interesting background? It's Yeah, it's a little bit of an interesting combination. Um, typically, MD-PhDs are in the sciences, and to do an MD plus a PhD in the humanities is fairly rare. I can probably count the number of people that have those degrees on uh, one hand. And of course, one finger is myself or will be myself <laughs> once I've completed my, my long road to both degrees. Um, so I have a BS in biology from Azusa Pacific. And really during my time as an undergrad, I was either hiding out in the science laboratory doing experiments, or I was similarly curled up in the library reading a book of poetry, a novel, or something by one of the Inklings. And so after my time as an undergraduate, I joined the first cohort of MA and English students at APU, uh, which is a really fantastic program. I believe you've had other students um, that have gone through the program on this show, can say nothing mm -hmm. but good things, very unique as a program that has kind of a theological religious studies element as well. Um, but my road to the MD-PhD in English is really just because I had an enduring love for both areas of study. And when you can't choose between two very robust graduate degrees, the only reasonable choice is to choose both of them. Um, so I first considered doing a PhD in neuroscience, but after the master's in English, after discovering the riches of the field of the medical humanities and the riches of inkling studies, I knew that I had to do both. And I'm at the University of California, Irvine, which allowed me to do the MD plus the PhD in English, and I couldn't be having a better time and I couldn't be more grateful. <laughs> and so just to say something about the medical humanities, uh, the medical humanities is about looking at the intersections between medicine and literature, philosophy, history, anthropology, and really asking how can the humanities enrich our understanding of things like human health, illness, suffering, and care. And I'm really interested in holistic understandings of the human experience and how that ought to inform and really how it ought to often correct our practices of medicine um, and considering narrative, history, and the importance of language for delivering compassionate and holistic care. And really a lot of the work that I'm doing acknowledges the crucial importance of story, like the Inklings, the crucial importance of story to all areas of human knowledge and experience, particularly medicine. And so my research looks at areas where literature and medicine meet, for instance, within the Inklings, um, and also within the 18th century, which is really before the disciplines have these solid boundaries, before we really have the sciences on one side and the humanities on the other. 
So once I'm done with all this wonderful schooling, uh, my plan is to practice psychiatry and not just practice medicine, but also write and do research and teach. And I'm really interested in thinking about the whole person in psychiatry and really considering um, Christian conceptions of the human person and the soul back into our dialogues about mental health. And what does it mean to have a soul when we're talking about mental suffering, about mental health and mental illness? So basically you're going to be at school forever. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Professional student and I'll write some things along the way. (laughs) When I was reading about your background, uh, a phrase popped into my head two roads diverged in a wood. And I took both of them. (laughs) And it has made all the difference. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where in your life did the Inklings actually appear in the first place? Yeah. So in a real way, I kind of grew up with C.S. Lewis and my experiences with Lewis kind of informed my intellectual trajectory. And so I, I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia from a very young age. And the very first discreet thought I can remember having about C.S. Lewis is looking in the back of the page, probably of the last battle, looking in the back cover and realizing that Lewis passed away the exact year that my parents were born and thinking how tremendously unfair that was (laughs) that one, he was gone, I could never meet him, and two, he wouldn't be writing any more books. That was the last one. Um, But I continued reading Lewis as I grew up. When I was in fifth grade, I had a wonderful teacher that lent me her copy of the Ransom Trilogy, as well as the Screwtape Letters. I really enjoyed the Ransom Trilogy. I can't tell you how much of the Screwtape Letters I truly appreciated <laughs> as a fifth grader, but I have, you know, I've read it child. since then. <laughs> I've definitely I want this read child it since to never then. sleep. <laughs> yeah, the, the frogs in uh, Paralandra. I remember being terrified of that, that it's Ransom, <laughs> Ransom, nothing. Um, but, you know, after reading those, I, I read The Lord of the Rings and seventh grade and couldn't put them down. I think I read all three of them within the space of a week. Oh my goodness. Um, I can remember quoting the abolition of man in a, you know, freshman high school bioethics paper. Oh, you you were that kid. I was that kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I had my, you know, set of C.S. Lewis books even then. Um, But really during college, I had the pleasure of studying abroad in Oxford in 2013, which was during the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death and all the wonderful events that happened then. Mm. Um, I was able to attend the dedication of his stone in Poets' Corner, which was absolutely magical. I went to events and sermons and plays at his Headington Church home. I was able to go to the C.S. Lewis Society, the lectures and the dinners. And I also was able to take a tutorial on C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and mythopoeic literature. And really just being there in Oxford and breathing that air and walking on the cobblestones where so many conversations had been had and so many thoughts kind of still linger in the air was really the beginning of my um, incipient identity as an Inkling scholar and the first sense that I would do future work in the sciences and the humanities. Your story actually has some parallels with my co-host Matt, who also did a study abroad at Oxford. And he was reading Christianity while he was walking on Addison's Walk, wrestling with Christianity and atheism and talking with Richard Dawkins. There's something about those places that, yeah. My wife and I will be going back there in October. I still have not yet walked Addison's Walk. Uh, so that's that's the main goal for this trip. Well, hopefully you have some wonderful conversations and your own moments of poetry and beauty. And a good pint or two. Yeah, or three. Make it three. <laughs> <laughs> it's Trinitarian number. Exactly.
So when I returned to APU, I then did a master's in English, and I took several really wonderful classes with Dr. Diana Glyer. I took her Mere Christianity class, a Dante course, and then later as an MA student, her Inklings course. And really after that, my, my fate was set. <laughs> <laughs> so I took all these wonderful classes, had all these great experiences. And, you know, while um, at, at all those points, the Inklings were on my bookshelves, now I'm happy to say that they will soon need their own bookshelf entirely. <laughs> Okay, but not many books have been written about Dr. Havard, so what prompted your interest in him? Yes, it's that, that gap in the bookshelf that needs to be filled in, in some way. So it was during um, the Inklings course I took with Dr. Glyer and really focused on understanding the group as a group, thinking about what, they, what made them special, how did they work together as a writing group, I think The Company They Keep is probably my favorite book on the Inklings. Mm -hmm. And it was Dr. Glyer herself that suggested that I look into uh, Dr. Havard as he was the only physician scientist in the group. And I was the only student in the class with a kind of science background. <laughs> and so it was very fortuitous and really, I think, uh, an act of providence that dis I discovered you know, a wealth of writings that had not only been lost to scholars, but also found a kindred spirit in Havard who kind of lived at this intersection between the sciences and the humanities and literature and medicine with an interest in spirituality. Um, and not only that, but that he was one of the most faithful members of the Inklings and his story has not yet been told. Yeah, we were at Montreat College, Matt and myself, and Dr. Glyer gave a presentation basically based on Bandersnatch, the company they keep. And it was the first presentation that had been given that weekend that just got a standing ovation at the end of it. Oh. I'm not surprised. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Havard is one of the lesser known Inklings. And I actually had a real problem even trying to find a picture of him for today's, uh, for, for the episode's cover graphic. Uh, but you are now in a, albeit virtual room with lots of C.S. Lewis fans. What is it that they need to know about this guy? So that's a wonderful question. Uh, before we kind of unpack that, make a note about the photo, which I think is kind of illustrative in a funny way. And so the photo, the wonderful photo that you found is, is actually one of the most famous photos of the Inklings. It's the main photo on the Pints with Jack website. And so mm -hmm. Havert is quite truly front and center <laughs> of the site. And yet it's still somehow hard to find. There's something that is sitting right under our noses and it's always been there and we really haven't given it uh, a second look or proper attention. And so I think this provides a great illustration for why this book is necessary and so important. Because what have we been missing about the Inklings that has been right in front of us? And what parts of the story have we perhaps lost? And so I've been thinking about Havard and, and reading what he wrote. And he really was an exceptional physician writer who was at home among the Inklings. He was very close with Lewis. Uh, Lewis mentions him multiple times in his letters. In a 1955 letter, he even describes Lewis as almost my greatest friend. Um, Havard and Tolkien's friendship, they're bolstered by both being Catholic, that which you know often would kind of shift the, the dynamic of Inklings meetings because they would take a stance and maybe you know Lewis would take the opposite stance. I think that happened once about cremation. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, the Catholics were against it. But it also allowed the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien to continue long after the formal meetings of the Inklings ceased to occur. And Tolkien would sit, uh, would he, sit with the Havard family at mass 
And uh, Colin and John Habbard have told me that often Tolkien would come back to the car after the homily and and often have some very critical things to say <laughs> about what was said. And oh, well, that 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 wasn't quite right. And you know, he made this point and uh, like that. And Havard and Tolkien were also neighbors in the period between uh, 1950 and 1968 on Sandfield Road. And of course, as we know, Havard served to visit physician uh, to both Lewis and Tolkien and really most of Oxford at the time. And he was the one inkling with the car, uh, which is where we get the nickname, the useless quack, because Warren Lewis was waiting for a ride. And Havard, probably being on call or seeing <laughs> patients or with his family, failed to turn up. And Warren Lewis, of course, responded, oh, where is that useless quack? with his very, oh. very useful car. <laughs> <laughs> and so Lewis, I mean, uh, Havard, like I said, was one of the most faithful attendees, um, which is not only in his relationship with Lewis and Tolkien, but really he's kind of embedded in this larger circle of Oxford at the time. He gave the first address of the Socratic Club in the Hillary term of 1942, where Lewis was kind of the faculty advisor. He hosted both Lewis and Elizabeth Anscombe for dinner, following their now famous 1948 debate. Uh, Havard asked Charles Williams for help when he was seeking to publish and print an illustrated uh, poem that he wrote as a Christmas card. Um, Colin Havard has told me of an ill-fated sailing trip that he and his father experienced with another lesser-known inkling, Tom Stevens. Havard wanted to learn how to sail. Stevens said that he knew how to sail. They got on a boat. It went horribly wrong. And I don't think they ever went sailing as a group again. <laughs> it's also worth noting that uh, Lewis and Ronald Knox shared a common friend in Dr. Havard. Uh, Havard was close to Ronald Knox. Ronald Knox dedicated one of his novels to Havard. Um, and this is a pair that, you know, Milton Walsh has written a book about Knox and Lewis and placed them in conversation. And so a lot of the ways that I've been thinking about him is in these different capacities, in these different identities as a physician, as a Catholic thinker and writer, and as an inkling. And do you want me just to kind of keep going or do... You oh, yeah. To... No, I'm, I'm okay. learning so much here. <laughs> keep going. Okay. So, sounds good. Um, so we can think about him first in this capacity as a physician. And so he was an Oxford and Cambridge trained MD, not only a practicing physician, the way it works in the UK is much different than in the US in terms of degrees, but he was, you know, had a doctorate in medicine. There was an academic research component. Um, he worked in a number of research labs throughout his career. Interestingly enough, he actually spent, uh, I think it was at least a year at Cambridge with a scientist that Pineswift Jack listeners may recognize, uh, JBS Haldane, who gathered such, you know, I would not praise, but gathered such attention in the Ransom trilogy as kind of the poster child for scientism in a way and was parodied <laughs> in the form of Weston. So, so Havard worked with him. They were colleagues and published a paper um, with another student under Haldane's direction. So really, Looking at his medical career, you have this very research-heavy component, but eventually, you know, in the um, early 1930s, he decides to start a family practice, and he decides that I wanted to do medicine because I wanted to treat humans and not test tubes. I wanted to treat people. <laughs> and so he goes to Oxford. And really what we see over the course of his medical career is this enduring concern for the whole person. Uh, for the psychological, for the physical, 
for the spiritual and other inklings noticed this. Um, you know, he came over once when Lewis had gotten a ring stuck on his finger and brought over, I think it was a hacksaw <laughs> and <laughs> sat and talked to Lewis and distracted him, you know, as your friend is sawing through this ring on your finger. Um, there was once when Tolkien wasn't feeling too well and he told Havard and Havard gave him a checkup and said, you know, what I think is really wrong is that, you know, you're a Catholic and you haven't been to confession recently. You should go to mass and you should go to confession. And Tolkien went and said he felt a lot better after that. Um, so there's this real attentiveness to kind of the whole person, who they are, even down to the level of individual psychology. And a good example of kind of how this played out within the Inklings is that we think of uh, C.S. Lewis's first really meaningful and enduringly popular work of apologetics, The Problem of Pain. And mm. if we take our copy of The Problem of Pain and thumb to the back, there's this mm -hmm. little appendix at the end that says something like, you know, a note on the observed effects of pain kindly, you know, supplied by Robert Havard, M.D., and so we've kind of had this idea that Havard wrote an appendix to this work. You know, Havard said that Lewis looked at it, he edited it, he kind of got it right, and then this is included in the final book. You know, we it's still there. But the real story is actually a bit more complicated. So Lewis asked Havard to write a appendix of around a thousand words. And we still have a draft of what Havard wrote, which he titled Pain and Behavior and Medical Practice. And if you go through this draft, even looking at the scribbles and you know what's crossed out, the word count of this draft is uh, a thousand, a hundred words. So he went over by a hundred. He got really close. Mm -hmm. But what's strange is that when you look at the published version, it's actually 539 words. So Lewis almost or halved, really, what Havard wrote. And he really edited out, which we know that Lewis edited it really because Havard says so. Um, he edited out all of Havard's mentions of mental suffering and mental illness. And there's this hmm. unusual sense in which the original content of this draft kind of in a sense pushes back against some elements of C.S. Lewis's The Odyssey and kind of identifies just a different element of pain that really isn't addressed in the book. And of course, it's not Lewis's purpose necessarily to talk about mental suffering. It's mostly focused on, you know, natural evil, but there's still things like that curious chapter on animal pain, you know, and other these kind of personal flashes that make you think, well, he asked his friend, the physician, perhaps this would have been relevant. Mm -hmm. And it really gives kind of insight into how they worked as a writing group. And so I can read a passage um, of an original draft of what was there um, but I'll just say briefly that what is in the published appendix, um, I'll, I'll read what was published. And it says, in actual insanity, the picture is darker. In the whole realm of medicine, there is nothing so terrible to contemplate as a man with chronic melancholia. But most of the insane are not unhappy or indeed conscious of their condition. In either case, if they recover, they are surprisingly little changed. Often they remember nothing of their illness. And so this is kind of a, I would say, almost flippant view of mental illness. It's all okay if they recover. There's, you know, there's almost no meaning to the kind of intervening period of, you know, some kind of lack of loss of consciousness. Blip. It was a blip, right? It was a blip. It passes. It's a dark picture, but it's okay. And so the unedited version of that 
is completely, completely different. And it still begins in actual insanity, the picture is darker. But then it takes a bit of a different turn. He says, the first sign of approaching insanity is often a deterioration of character. In fully developed insanity, the character is completely hidden by the disease, which takes possession of the sufferer so completely that the phrase possessed of a devil is graphically descriptive. And then he says, our ignorance of the cause or cure of most examples of ins insanity is still complete. We are spectators, helpless to cure, alleviate, or even understand the suffering of the victim. In all the whole of medicine, there is nothing so terrible to contemplate as a man with chronic melancholia. To speak with him has all the effect of witnessing high tragedy transferred from the stage to life. Then he does say, but most of the insane are not unhappy or indeed conscious of their condition. In either case, if they recover, they are surprisingly little changed. Often they remember nothing of their illness. And so that part is still there, but he ends with something that really allows for meaning for both the sufferer and the provider of care. He says, it is impossible to form a conception of what insanity means to the sufferers themselves. But there's still a possibility of meaning there. And he says, but to look after the insane is a valuable discipline. It teaches gentleness and self-control. It induces a deep humility when it is recognized that reason itself is a gift which can be lost. Wow. And so the problem of pain is this entire book predicated on kind of the, the tower of reason that cannot be lost. And you have this draft of the appendix that says reason itself is not always so sure. Reason can be lost. When it is lost, it's a tragedy to us. We can't fully understand it. It means something. And to care for those in that condition teaches virtue. And so it's really strange when you hear that out loud and you hear the versions compared. It's strange. You think, why would, why would Lewis write that out? Why would he kind of, you know make it very kind of curt, very simple, and kind of take out really what are the more poetic or literary elements. I mean, this is written by a doctor. You, you kind of expect the very direct, mm -hmm. the very scientific. But here you have his doctor friend is kind of adding poetry in a way. And Lewis is the one kind of taking out those imaginative elements. Not only imaginative, but really these kind of sympathetic view, this very, you know, um, this humility towards mental illness. And it's also strange because Lewis did encounter in other people mental illness. There are some suicides among close friends. Uh, one person he refers to in his autobiography as literally going insane, crawling around on the floor. Hmm. It does make me wonder where else in his corpus he actually addresses that and tries to unpack it. Because it seems that sort of thing that he would do. Uh, but apparently in this case, it muddied the waters a bit too much. Yeah, and I, I really think that's part of it. So when he had that experience in 1923 with Doc Askins, you know, Mrs. Moore's mm. brother, where he's this man who he has loved is under the delusion that he's going to hell. And Lewis is having to hold him down while he's having a breakdown and endure that. Um, I think part of the reason that it was changed is that that was just so hard and so heartbreaking to see someone you love so much suffering in that way. That Lewis, I think, just didn't, in a sense, didn't want to go there. And mm -hmm. so you see kind of this fear of madness that he, you know, 
in his youth there kind of, you know, absorbed this fear of madness. He tells Arthur Greaves, like, whatever you do, take care to not get a neurosis. Um, take care, because that's something that you can prevent. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something that my mother would say. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't become neurotic. Um, and you see, especially in Out of the Silent Planet or Paralandra, um, this kind of fear of, you know, when Ransom is walking around and he's he's concerned that he's losing his mind on Malacandra or when the narrator is trying to walk to Ransom's cottage and is feeling this kind of spiritual attack, which manifests as kind of a mental attack. And mm. so I think there was this there's this kind of this deep pain there and this kind of um, resistance to make that part of the story of pain, perhaps. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and there's a, um, if you want to look it up, um, I published this in Seven, the Journal of the Wade Center, as a longer paper on kind of, called it the revised clinical imagination. Um, and look at, <laughs> look at the changes that Lewis made. Just out of interest, where are you, what are your primary sources? Are his letters and papers and everything, are they collected anywhere? Or are you having to do a lot of, uh, lot of elbow grease to, to find, track down this stuff? Both and. Um, so during the 80s, I think a lot of his papers were deposited at the Wade. Um, so there are papers that are there in the archive. Um, but even then, there's, you know, poem drafts and extra articles and letters that have been held by the family. And so really the work that I'm doing has been a combination of going into the archive and pulling out the last dusty box that <laughs> hasn't been, you know, fully sorted and, and looking for that, you know, um, and, you know, going through what's been digitized. So a lot of his publications have been digitized and just finding them, um, as well as the family has really made this research possible because they've allowed access and allowed me to look at things that um, otherwise have not been seen by archives. And so John and Colin Havard in particular, they have just been so supportive of the work and so generous with their time and really made this possible. That's really great. Well, he was also, as you mentioned, a Catholic. How did that figure in his life? Yeah. So you can kind of see in the story with Tolkien, you know, this Catholic physician where the prescription is, you should go to mass <laughs> and you should go to <laughs> confession. Um, and so that's kind of looking at a, you know, Tolkien thinks that maybe it's a physical problem. Havard realizes that it's probably more of a, you know, spiritual or psychological, you know, thing that's going on. Um, but that also happened in reverse because he was a physician to, of course, like we said, a lot of Oxford. And that included a lot of Catholic religious houses full of monks and nuns. And often he would, you know, be called into those contexts as a Catholic physician, and he would kind of have to take the opposite line. And so for a nun who's under, you know, vows of holy obedience, she doesn't want to not do her duties because she's sick. <laughs> and so he, you know, Colin has told me that he would look at such a nun and say, I am telling you, and he would know the language probably better than I would here. <laughs> I am telling you within holy obedience that you have to stay in bed. You have to rest. You have to take this medicine. You have to do this. You know, do you understand that this is part of you fulfilling your vows is to take care of yourself? Um, and so it, of course, came out in his medical practice in that way. Um, and just thinking about him as a Catholic thinker, um, he wrote a series of essays at different times. And a lot of his writing is concentrated within his association with the Inklings, which makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But he wrote about science and faith. 
Um, he gave that first talk at the Socratic Club about, you know, will mankind outgrow Christianity in the face of science and modern ideologies? Um, he also wrote on the intersection between the literature and the arts. And probably one of my most favorite things that he wrote uh, was this series of essays, three essays that were uh, that were called The Uses of Diversity and that were published in 1947. And I think that the title is a nod to uh, Chesterton has an essay collection called The Uses of Diversity. So he's mm -hmm. kind of following in this tradition of, you know, the Catholic um, essayist. And here's a quote. This is one of my favorite quotes. He's talking about beauty. He's talking about art. Um, he kind of gives this prescription. He kind of diagnoses and then gives a prescription. And his diagnosis is that the modern world and modern life is ugly. It is causing some kind of spiritual sickness. <laughs> and what do you do? How do you how do you cure ugliness? You cure it with beauty. And you pursue beauty through the eyes of faith. And you invest in the arts. And he's talking about poetry. And he says, By so clothing a situation with beauty... The poet makes it a living thing for us. Not only do the poets see further than most of us, but they have the art of making us see with them. And we see, moreover, in especially, an especially vivid way. For they bring not merely intellectual knowledge. They stir feelings and emotions. They educate our hearts. So that there is, in the world of poetry, an enormous wealth of beauty, waiting only for our leisure, attention, and exploration. <laughs> And if poetry is a world, literature as a whole is an entire universe. Some of the greatest achievements of the human race are preserved in literature. We can resurrect and enjoy them when and as often as we please. When we can meet with and converse with the greatest human minds, not only of our own days, but of all ages. We can escape from the narrow confines, not only of our own town and city, but of our own time as well. We are free to range over all historic time and the whole world. Literature will take us into the homes and lives of the wealthy and the poor, to the mind stored with learning and to minds rich only in the experience of suffering. The whole pattern of humanity is there for our study and delight. Wow, that is so good. And I'm just hearing echoes of all of the other inklings. Uh, there's you got Tolkien there talking about escapism. Uh, you've got Lewis talking about my own eyes are not enough for me. I must see through the eyes of others, referring to literature as a pair of spectacles. Wow, that's that's really beautiful. He was a doctor, you say? <laughs> he was a doctor. I know. I, I would. I mean, I, I want to be that type of doctor, but I wouldn't mind seeing a type of doctor who will read me that <laughs> before I go as well. Yeah, there's even a little bit of Barfield in a way in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we're not limited by our own time, similar sense of, you know, rejection of chronological snobbery. But it makes yeah. sense. You read something like that and it makes sense. He's no longer a puzzle of who is this physician, you know, oh, Lewis invited his doctor. No, it's like, oh, he had something to say. He was a member of the group in a really meaningful way. Mm. Wow. What, what were his... Uh other interactions with the Inklings? Because I know some of them had their various contentions. The, the phrase, oh no, not another bloody elf springs to mind. Uh, how, how did he fare with the rest of the Inklings? You know, it's hard because you're kind of going through, you know, he has the, the memoir about uh, Lewis called Philia, Jack at Ease. He wrote a brief memoir of Tolkien, which is fun. You know, at some point he says, despite being a renowned philologist, he was actually very great company. <laughs> 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 just, oh, oh, okay. Um, 
he has the, you know, the interaction with Stevens. And beyond that, you're kind of piecing apart these, you know, or piecing together these pieces. You know, the, the mention his wife mentions Williams in a letter says, oh, Williams has been by, you know, asking about X and Y that you wanted to get printed. Um, I know that during his uh, interview with uh, Lyle Dorsett, the oral history interview in the 80s, he kind of comments on uh, what Charles Williams kind of did to the group and how Tolkien didn't quite, you know, approve of some aspects of Williams as occultism. But I think in some way we can think of it in terms of he was one of the core members, kind of if anyone was there, it would be Warren Lewis, it'd be Tolkien, and it would be Havard. And there was a lot of these other figures that would come and go. I mean, Barfield is ob obviously incredibly you know, influential for Lewis, but would be kind of at a distance. Williams is in Oxford for the for a time before he passes away. And in terms of how he was at meetings, you kind of get these glimpses and Humphrey Carpenter pulls this out a little bit. And I think it is true to how he would have been in meetings is always asking, well, well, why? Well, well, why do you think that? Or when Lewis is writing the space trilogy being like, are you sure? Are you sure that's scientific? And so he could kind of provide <laughs> that clarifying voice and maybe push a bit on the science uh, side of things. But um, I don't think that he only asked questions. Um, we know that he read things at groups. He he probably read or either he or Lewis wrote, read the appendix to the problem of pain. He read them a story about mountain climbing that Lewis said, you know, made our hair stand on end. Um, there's a poem or two of his that I'm pretty sure he read at a meeting because Lewis's handwriting is all over it. Um, he has other poems that there's kind of, you know, you kind of get those senses of references where oh, I, I can see this being read out loud in an Inklings meeting. And mm -hmm. so I think he was he was an active contributor. Um, and because of he had all these interests, he was I think he was able to keep up and often kind of poke and instigate <laughs> as much as he asked a clarifying question. Hmm. Next season, we're going to be working our way through Out of the Silent Planet, and I've got Jimmy Aiken coming on the show because I know he has some very strongly held opinions about some of the science in that series. So I think he and Havard might have been friends. They could have gotten along. They, they would have <laughs> decorated it in red ink, perhaps. <laughs> and the idea that Lewis was uh, taking a paper that he'd written and commenting on it, I, I think that really expresses one of Lewis's love languages, which is literary criticism. If he loves you and if he, if he likes or hates what you've done, he's going to be telling you about it. And the gift of those notes and the gift of good feedback and a friendship mm. constructed around good feedback. So you've told us that his essay is included at the back of The Problem of Pain. Did he and Lewis work on anything else? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so like we said, The Problem of Pain appendix, um, Lewis edited some of his poems. Lewis um, includes Havard in several of his poems. We have one that Havard uh, was in the Navy during World War II and, and came back when he received the nickname of the Red Admiral, which is very high above his actual rank. He, he takes care to say that, but he came back with a red beard and Lewis promptly called him the Red Admiral. And Lewis wrote a poem called uh, The Admiral Stamped on the Quarter Deck. And it's this very kind of body farcical poem about uh, Havard coming from sea and coming back home and says, there's some line that says, and now become a resident quack in Oxford. <laughs> um, Havard also shows up in Lewis's The Five Sonnets. Um, there's this whole episode with the bee that kind of bangs against the glass, thinking that the by that way can get to the flowers. And there's a line that says, but my doctor said, 
And uh, Barfield says that the whole episode and the poem was suggested in conversation with Havard. Um, kind of a tantalizing thread that we may never fully know is that uh, Lewis and Havard actually co-wrote a Christmas play sometime after oh. the war. And so they were inspired by Dorothy Sayers, The Man Born to Be King. And so mm -hmm. they wrote this play together. And I've heard it was quite funny. I can't find it, but it was quite funny. And the Havard children acted it out with they made these puppets. And so they put on a puppet show and enacted this Christmas drama <laughs> that Havard and Lewis wrote together. Um, so you kind of have these collaborations on different levels on something that was, you know, designed for publication, on poetry that, you know, we're both writing poetry at the time. Havard published several poems, but most of them were um, remained unpublished. And then also on the level of kind of family, <laughs> family mm -hmm. uh, theater events, um, which is fun. And, and kind of when we have these things in perspective, we realize they had a lot of shared interests and a lot mm -hmm. of overlap, which suggests that there was this kind of trajectory of collaboration and mutual influence. And given that we've just finished the four loves this season, philia, because exactly. that pre that's the precondition for it. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Okay. So that was amazing. Uh, I think I'm going to like this guy. Uh, you are writing a book. Now, it sounds like there needs to be a critical edition of all of his works, but what is your book going to be covering? So the the book is first. The critical edition <laughs> is the second project because I, I really think there's all these wonderful pieces that um, really just to read for their own sake and to read in conjunction with the Inklings. And so my working title, um, which I have not said anywhere, so you're, you are the first to hear the working title, um, is, <laughs> is The Medical Inkling. Ari Havard, C.S. Lewis, and the Therapeutic Imagination. Mm. And so, as I've alluded, we really have an opportunity here to think about the group in a different way, give a second look at an overlooked member and shift our narrative in a kind of a more holistic sense um, and recalibrate our understanding of Lewis and the Inklings. And so I'll be looking at Havard from different perspectives, you know, as a physician writer, as an interdisciplinary figure, as a collaborator with, collaborator with C.S. Lewis, and as the, really the only scientifically or medically trained figure within the Inklings, as a Catholic physician, as a lay theologian, as someone interested in the arts and the poetry. And really, when I say the therapeutic imagination, I'm interested in thinking about what is possible. You know, when we say what we can imagine, we're really talking about what is possible? What heals the body? What heals the mind? What heals the spirit? And how does the exercise of the imagination, whether that be in the sciences, the humanities, or the arts, make us more whole? What is it about reading that makes us more whole? And so be looking at the therapeutic imagination of both Havard and Lewis and thinking about the therapeutic as medical, as spiritual, and even really as scholarly, as in that we're healing, in a way, our story about the Inklings. We're filling this gap in the bookshelf. And so my book will be structured by these different categories. Um, Havard is Catholic, Havard is Inkling, uh, Havard is physician. And what's interesting is that several of these identities also pose a certain binary, which I'm going to both explore and in a way collapse. So when we think of medicine, we think of treating the body, and then we think of treating the mind. Well, Havard kind of did both in an integrated way. We think about exercising reason through something like apologetics. And then we think of imagination through the lens of, you know, faith and thinking about theology and the arts. Well, again, Havard kind of unified both. And finally, thinking about him as an inkling, as someone who wrote fiction and nonfiction, 
you know, memoir, scientific articles, and poetry. And so the book will provide a biography of Ari Havard, and as well a survey of really his published and unpublished writings, and in so doing, give the untold story of his role in the Inklings, and in particular, as the title suggests, his relationship with C.S. Lewis. And so like I said before, this project is really made possible by the Havard family. I'm so honored and grateful for their friendship and their enthusiastic support of the group um, and cannot thank enough uh, the help of John and Colin and have the deepest gratitude for their friendship. It's the funniest thing meeting a relative of an inkling. So I've, I've met Douglas Gresham and I also have met Owen Barfield. I got an email from Owen Barfield uh, and it took a few Google searches before I realized that that's also the name of his grandson. But it was very strange being in a pub with the grandson of an inkling. It's a, I don't know, it's, it's a strange level of connection. When you were talking about uh, healing there, the, the phrase that kept bouncing around my head was from the first century bishop, St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I do wonder if Havard ever read him because Ignatius has got a wonderful line when he's speaking about the Eucharist because he describes it as the medicine of immortality. Mm. No, that's beautiful. I think that would have been right up a, a doctor's alley. I think so. And in reconstructing his bookshelf, <laughs> he would have been mm -hmm. there as well. Yeah, kind of the sacramental therapy. What does it mean to not only see the sacraments themselves as therapy, but to have a sacramental imagination in which the world mm. is kind of charged in this therapeutic sense? Yeah. And that taps into the romanticism, which the Inklings loved. Uh, exactly. See, seeing, seeing nature in this way and them all speaking very explicitly about how rejuvenating they found it. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, it's funny too, when you think, when you said um, about meeting relatives of Inklings, it's kind of surreal and it's incredible because you get this insight into them as people, kind of a, a new level of the real <laughs> that accompanies mm -hmm. that. Well, Sarah, we're definitely gonna have to have you back on when you're nearing publication, uh, but thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute joy. Now, as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, uh, can you please tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you and the things you're up to? Yes. Uh, my personal website is sarahodellmdphd.com. And I've also started a, <laughs> a dedicated Twitter account, which is much more apropos for the Inklings. And so I can be found on Twitter at uh, the Medical Inkling and is a uh, account dedicated to Robert Havard, the Medical Inkling. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks again to Sarah for coming on the show. Thank you all for spending an hour with us. And thanks to our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Angela, Deborah One, Deborah Two, Amanda, Thomas, Anony Mouse, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and teach people a little bit about Dr. Havard. And coming up next month, we will have Poetry Month, where we will be digging into C.S. Lewis's poetic corpus. So please join us then, when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>